Welcome to episode 23 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined by my co-host, the woman who puts the ooh-ooh in O.O. Howard, Mary Fincher. I am Darren Weeks. Hey, Mary. How are you? Ooh. Ooh. Is that what you meant? The ooh-ooh <laughs> and oh, oh. <laughs> We gotta have mentioned him tonight because he's gonna be making an appearance. So I guess we gotta get it ready for that horse. Yep, get ready we for do. Garden hose to hose you down because <laughs> Oh Howard's gonna be here. So here we go. He may just be the MVP of this one. Who knows? Oh, I think he's gonna be. The, I think he's gonna be anyway. Even if he wasn't even there. So we'll give yep. him credit. We'll give him credit. How's your week been? Good. How about you? Not bad. Not bad. Can't complain. Today's Tuesday. Moving right yep. along into mid to late January as we. Yep move on here so had a good live i thought on saturday had a lot of good people dropping in as this is recorded it's tuesday tomorrow will be our next round table yep so when this drops on saturday we will have the round table and on saturday we will be having the announcement of our the winners of our book raffle so there's a lot of good things coming down the pike mary so and speaking of coming down the pike we're going to talk about old Uncle Blingy, William Tecumseh Sherman, as he goes into the Carolinas. I know we got some business to do first, but subject of tonight's action-packed show is Sherman in the Carolinas. Now, we're going to be talking specifically about how he brushes up against Charleston. He's going to be going to Columbia. This is going to be the first of a two-parter, Mary. Yes. We ain't going to be talking about no Fort Fisher tonight, so, so we don't need your letters. Complain. Nope. We're just taking this to Columbia. We're taking so, it to Columbia, and that's yeah. what we're going to be doing. So we have plenty, plenty of stuff to talk about, and we will have a lot of fun doing this as we continue along as the wild and crazy march of William T. Sherman continues as yep. he starts to move his way up north into the Carolinas. Yep, it's basically just a continuation of the march to the sea. Oh, and by the way, I am drinking Portage India Pale Ale tonight. That's kind of a lazy announcement. Anyway, and what are you drinking out of your mug? I, my William T. Sherman mug, of course. Shocker. And I am going to be drinking Escape Plan nice. Sour Ale because of Sherman. And this is by the great Trillium here in Boston. Nice. And I'm drinking it out of my Uncle Blingy, I Dream of a Brighter Atlanta coffee mug, which I have shown on many an occasion. Yes. So it's the only one I have for Sherman. So that's what you get. Well, I had a reason for choosing Portage because admittedly, I did go to the Lickbow as I usually do on Tuesdays. And he did it ends in a Y. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. Fucker. <laughs> Anyway, but I chose Portage because in this part, during the Carolinas campaign, they are encountering a lot more water and having to go through it. One soldier wrote in his diary that he said they were becoming amphibious because of all the water and swamps that they had to go through. So that's why Portage, portaging canoes, not that they were portaging canoes. I don't know. Is that is Portage an American word too? Like, are you familiar with what portaging is? Something about a canoe. Oh my God. <laughs> Did I choose a completely Canadian thing? You start talking about poutine and Tim Hortons. I don't know, <laughs> we're, gonna be, we're gonna be going off the rails. So yes. okay, so portage is when you're canoeing and you pick it up, and you and your canoe buddy have to like basically carry it over your head to the next stream or river, or wherever the fuck you're gonna take your canoe. Yeah, we, we don't have those. We have cars here. We have like motorized vehicles. We don't have canoes, and we don't have like bears and other stuff up there to ride around on so I, that's probably why you don't know what it is but in any case this is a great story by the way this is fantastic stuff this is stuff you only get here i was like portage that means like rivers and stuff and everybody will get it no it's a canadian thing another job done <laughs> as we get moving along mary on the sherman of the carolinas we're going to talk a little bit where we left off so last time we saw old uncle blingy and his gang of merry men on his left wing led by slocum and the right wing of course led by the great oo howard we mm. talked about they were in savannah they had reached the march to the sea 
And they took the surrender. They were sitting there for a little bit of time, trying to get their bearings together a little bit about trying what the next game plan was. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of stuff going on at the time. We mentioned there, before about, about Ebenezer Creek, right? So yep. he's got to sit and listen to Stanton about that whole fiasco on Ebenezer Creek with all the slaves being left behind. So they get through that pretty well. But the rumblings now in the South and the Confederate side are starting because they're getting really nervous because now Sherman is in Savannah. He's connected with the Navy. He's getting resupplied. They know he's probably going to be going north. A lot of the folks in the Charleston area are freaking out because they think he's going to come get Charleston, which I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people wanted, especially in the north. But they didn't really know. And so even before Sherman even began his march, Beauregard, our boy Beauregard, commanded the Department of the West. He anticipated Sherman's march because he figured he was going to be going east to get to the ocean and eventually was going to try to connect and reinforce Grant. Even Lincoln didn't know where he was going, but I think what he was trying to do was not a surprise. They just didn't know what his ultimate goal was. Mm -hmm. In the state of South Carolina, which was the beginning of the party, right, of secession. So they they were sensitive to all this. And so in South Carolina, there's a governor by the name of Andrew McGrath. Mm -hmm. Okay. Harvard guy. He's from up here. So another guy who couldn't get into Boston College, Mary. He was also a judge, wasn't he? He was a judge. He was a federal judge. Mm -hmm. And this is prior to secession, obviously. 1860, he resigns. After secession happens, he's disgusted by the federal outreach. He calls it the altar has been sacrificed by tyranny. So it sounds like a fun ideologue. He gives quite the speech. I would encourage anybody um, to Google his speech because it is quite fiery. Not a fun guy to probably be around. No, no. But you know who likes him, though, is Jefferson Davis, Mary. So in 1862, he's appointed to be a judge in the Confederacy. He ultimately gets elected 1864 to be the governor of South Carolina. Now, he is going to be nervous because he wants to fences in South Carolina because he as him says he's the governor. But as Sherman arrives in December of 1864, Savannah's retreated, a lot starts. And we could talk about the politics of the whole thing. You know like sometimes you're at the uh, Dairy Queen up there in yep. King Carden. Sometimes you got the two bosses you're gonna deal with and you don't yep. know who the hell to listen to. Well this is how Sherman felt, right? He's got two bosses. He's yeah. got Henry Halleck and he's got Ulysses S. Grant. Yes. A lot of people on Christmas Eve are sitting around having a good time, a couple of drinks. God knows what you're doing on Christmas Eve. They're writing a lot of letters. So they are. he's getting a letter. Halleck ends up basically writing to Sherman. And we're going to read some letters here. So just bear with me here for a second. So the political side of the Charleston thing is there. There's the military side. So Halleck is going to write to Sherman. He basically says, I hope if you capture Charleston, that by some accident, the place will be destroyed. And if some salt is applied to the site, it may prevent the growth of future crops of secession. So he's saying, listen, Blingy, if you get a chance, fuck these guys up. Yeah. Because they started the whole damn thing. But then you know what he does, though? He changes his mind. He sits there and says, listen, I do think that the best thing to do in the better part of your army is to basically go back and, and, and go get Lee. Kind of does that. But you got to wonder if Grant's talking to him as well, because Grant sends Sherman that letter and he wants Sherman to come up via ship and Sherman has to do his convincing like he says this is going to take four weeks like he basically says you know that men are going to get fucked up on those boats and they're not going to be in any shape to fight after they get off the boats for a few days Mm -hmm. and then he was basically like why don't you just let me take a stroll like through go to Columbia I'll go to Raleigh and then like that's only going to take six weeks which is just Mm -hmm. two weeks longer than what you're expecting exactly what he does he tells Halle what he wants to hear and he tells grant what he wants to hear yeah what he's basically sherman's going to write to grant again christmas eve so he's you know he's writing he basically says one reason now he's already written halleck this one letter right mm-hmm. well first of all what he what sherman responds back to halleck so halleck gets that letter uh, to sherman sherman gets the letter back and he says 
The whole army, this is Sherman now, the whole army is burning with an insatiable desire to wreak vengeance upon South Carolina. And then he goes, I will move the 15th Corps, which will be on the right wing, that will position them into Charleston. And if you've seen their history of that Corps, he says, you will see they do their work quite well. Then he says, they will not need salt, which is pretty cool. So he's telling Halleck, don't you worry. I'm going to, we're going to take care of this. But then he writes, he writes Grant and he says, just so you know, one reason I'm going to ignore Charleston is I believe they will reduce their garrison by a small force. And I know the neck back of Charleston will be made impregnable to assaults and we will hardly have time for siege operations. So he's basically, yeah. he's trying to satisfy both bosses, kind of like what you do up there at your job. Yep, exactly. <laughs> he's telling them both what they want to hear. Again, while this is all going on, basically what's going to happen is Grant and Stanton ultimately are going to basically approve his plan. So they're basically yep. saying, listen, it's leave Charleston alone. We're totally cool with that. Yep. But he says, just make sure there's no strong force left behind that's going to come back and bite you in the ass. Just take care of them. But this, what this is going to do, Mary, it's going to piss off a lot of the people in the north who want Charleston wiped off the face of the earth. Exactly. There's so much anger about Charleston. But again, you got to look at the, at the military thing. But you know what else is going on in Charleston, Mary? The Charleston papers are taunting the Union. While this is going on, this takes some balls, by the way. We'll yeah. talk about the Army lineup for what they actually had. The Charleston papers are basically saying, they're saying they want to fight Sherman. They write, the soil of our mother state will again drink the blood of our foes. This is from the Daily South Carolinian. Sounds yep. like a fun newspaper. But you can see the bravado these guys have, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, but they know, like, and they've heard stories from Georgia. Sherman mentions it in his memoirs that, and he was counting on that. He wanted to put fear in their hearts and he was hoping that the stories would be exaggerated and they were. One of the things that he does write to Grant, and this is more of like, you can see the friendship between them is he says, I do sincerely believe that the whole United States, North and South would rejoice to have this army turned loose on South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to say to Grant, we need to do this. And then he also says to Grant, I feel a personal dislike to turning northward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, Let me do I mean, my shit down here. Let me fuck but what's these guys what's up. What's funny was a lot of what Sherman says and does, you, you study years later, and people still talk about why he didn't wreck Charleston, right? And there's yeah. all kinds of rumors. And the if you go to Charleston, because I've gone down there from time to time, what, what the locals think, and I've heard this, I've, been, I've not read this anywhere admittedly, I've just heard this in the, in the bars and talking about it. They all say because Sherman had a girlfriend in Charleston, she begged him to save her city and leave it alone. That's to this day a very common theory in Charleston about why he didn't do it. Yeah, well, there are a few women he mentions in his memoirs when he gets to Columbia. There is that. But the other thing, too, that people don't think about is that Columbia is not only the capital, but it's also a munitions center as well. They're making munitions there. And for them to get to Columbia, which is what Sherman always believed, he's going to look like Howard's going towards Charleston. And that Slocum's going towards Augusta. But Columbia might have been the more strategic target for him, which is probably why he chose it. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. There was no reason except to take Charleston except for just vengeance. There was no reason. Exactly. Was, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll talk was, about how yeah. Charleston eventually falls a little bit later, but it just it's one of those things. It'd be out of pure spite. It'd be just out of revenge. And you know, Blingy, you know, Sherman, he's got a plan, he's gonna stick with it. The South Carolina citizens, though are still freaking out because they they want not they've heard these stories you've all heard the stories about sherman they're pleading and begging to the confederate government they just want one 
corps from Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia to be sent down to Charleston. And Lee's like, that fuck that. He's got Hardy, and, you know, but, but he's got no real force to defend the state. So they appeal to Davis and Secretary of War Sneddon. And you know what they both do? They both refer them to, to Lee. They say, well, we don't know what to do. What do you think? So Lee, he writes a letter. It's February 11th, 1865 is when this letter gets sent. And he's basically, and you can see the tone in this letter because he's, well, he's tell these fucking haters. He is, I have sent all the troops of this army can be spared. If the citizens of Georgia and South Carolina will fill up their ranks, they will be able to protect their country. So Lee's like, you know what? Go screw. You know, we've had so much opportunity to fill up. You guys, we, we have to draft. We have no people running on our army. I can't send you anybody. You got people. Go go figure it out. It's almost like the guy at the bar who starts a fight and then gets mad that no one comes to his help. Yeah. That's kind of what you think about a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. It is. You know, if you're at the mine some night on a Friday night and you start <laughs> your left first core broke both first crap and yep. next thing you know first core broke first <laughs> howard called it first yeah definitely let's talk about how this whole army set up again we'll go back to this so yeah so sherman's obviously running the show and he's got the two wings so he's got henry slocum we'll hear about quite a bit because he's going to live up to his slow to come slocum nickname here in a few minutes mm-hmm. the right wing is um led by some guy named oliver otis howard mayor have you heard of him he's a mayor you may have heard of him yep. he's got the one with the hair you my know. boy <laughs> So under Slocum, he's got basically two corps. He's got about 25,000 guys. He's got Jefferson C. Davis running the 14th Corps, and he's got Alpheus Williams, who's in charge of the 20th Corps. Yeah. Now, Howard, running the right wings, also got about 25, 26,000 guys. He's got the notorious 15th Corps with uh, Peter Osterhaus and Blackjack Logan. Yeah. Running the, you know, they're or Blackjack Darren. <laughs> Blackjack Darren. And then the 17th Corps by a guy named Frank Blair. Well, I said yeah. that one time, and I got to keep saying that every single time. But he's got Kilpatrick's cavalry, it was about 5,800 guys, and he's only got 70,000 artillery pieces. So, again, you want to see the, the speed that Sherman wants. He wants to limit how much he has to carry. Yeah. Go, again, going back to the Ebenezer Creek thing. So, he's going to spread his wings out from North Savannah. Howard is going to be the right, obviously. His 15th and 17th Corps are going to basically go on a boat, like a lot of people have near Hilton Head with Logan and Blair. They're going to push along a place called Pataglio, South Carolina. Yeah, no chance I got to pronounce that right, so I'm sorry, but that's how it looks, which is a city just southwest of Charleston. Slocum is going to be the left wing. He's got his 14th and his 20th. He's going to move up the Savannah River and cross at a place called Sisters Ferry and then move to a town called Robertville. Kilpatrick basically is going to run behind the right wing. He wants to basically draw some troops out of, out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and give Sherman that real strong foothold in the state. And I think a couple things to mention here, too, is that Howard's own thoughts on the, the Carolinas campaign was that he said, I felt in the outset in view of the Carolina campaign that it was to be the most trying of any which we had hitherto undertaken. Our enemies would increase as we advanced northward. Food and forage would be destroyed before us. The swamps would be worse than in Georgia and our troubles would multiply. And the key thing to take away from that is the terrain that they're going through. It is very different from what they encountered on the march to the sea. There's pine woods everywhere and there's swamps. There's cypress trees that they're having, like cypress trees. Then Howard is that occasionally you would get wide stretches of what would appear to be good ground, but then there would be quicksand. It's a drainage swamp. The, it the is, state, yeah. Everything runs, to, everything runs from north to south. It creates swamps. It's got marshes, to your point. It's got all kinds of stuff. Some mosquitoes, clowns. Clowns. Whatever you want. It's all, they're all there, right? 
but to your point, again, you're talking about a terrain issue that's going to come up. They're having to tear up railways as they go. That's a part of their orders for this. But they also have to build corduroy roads. And it takes many, many men to do this. Some of the refugees, the freed slaves, they are the ones doing this work. And there was one quote that I read that said that without them, they may not have been able to do this without those refugee freed slaves. But because of that, these men are not moving as quickly as they did on the march to the sea just because of this terrain they're encountering now some days they would make more miles than others but the one soldier i mentioned at the beginning he said they had to become amphibious so they're having to wade through swampy areas and all this and the thing is pontoon bridges get easily washed away and sometimes at night pickets have to be in boats as they stand guard and like i mentioned before we started amphibious does not mean you can throw with both hands i explained that to you (laughs) I'm glad we got that straight. So there's no more, no more confusion. It was embarrassing for the beginning. With but the left wing, you know, has you mentioned the the weather, the transport stuff. They're running into problems. So you know, Peter Osterhaus, we mentioned him. He's writing that the artillery horses are dying of starvation. That they're running mm. into supply issues now. The funny part about it is they're about six, seven miles away from their supply depot, and they can't get supplies. Whether from logistical reasons, it takes 20 days to get their supplies. So they have to wait. There's a soldier named Thomas Osborne, who's one of the staff people. He, he was, he's been in Slocum's army for a while and he has his diary and he blames the supply issues on Slocum. So he's like, I do not doubt that this 20 day delay comes from a lack of ability to cope with what he has on his hands. He failed Howard at Gettysburg and I fear he will do it to us again now. Yeah, Slocum right? does not come out looking very good in this, in his own memoirs. Now, keep in mind, these are memoirs. You're going to talk yourself up. Howard says that he had a much harder time than Slocum did, but that Slocum was a lot slower than, than what he should have been. And there were delays created because of that. Well, they did. I mean, the Rebs put torpedoes on the roads with these again. Yeah. You're starting to see them again along the roads. You mentioned the before about the, the corduroy stuff. They had to get over the mud. Yep. There was some bridges they had to cross. They were covered with fallen trees. They were blocking those. So, But it did delay Slocum ultimately two full weeks. Both of both arrive on the on the 15th of January was the day they were supposed to arrive. Howard was going to be at Taglio and Slocum was supposed to get to Robertsville. But Howard got there in his defense. He got there on the 15th, right on time. He did, yeah. He was right on time, okay? Because he runs. That's why, you know, <laughs> he was moving fast. So he got there right on the 15th, but it took till the February 3rd for Slocum to finally get there. So we'll talk more about the pillaging that's going to happen here in a few minutes. That delay, if, who had pissed off was Sherman. Oh, yeah, because Sherman was a little bit delayed, too, because of the weather in Savannah. So he was not able to get he's going to be with the right wing most of the time. I think in the March he was with the left wing and then he would kind of if he had to go back and forth between the two of them. But he's going to be with Howard through most of this. He gets to, to Beaufort on, I believe it is January the 23rd, finally, that he makes a brief stop in Hilton Head and then he gets to Beaufort. But he's not happy about the delay. He's pissed off. He's snapping at officers. He's yelling. Yeah. He's stomping around. He doesn't have the patience for it because what he doesn't want, he doesn't want the Rebs to have time to, to prepare for him. Now, he doesn't know what he's facing. He doesn't know what the, what the story is. But actually, speaking of what, the, what, what he's facing, so um, real quick, we'll flip the coin here and look at what the Rebs have to offer. This is, we're talking about the Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. We're talking about 18,000 guys. So you're not talking about a bunch versus 50 to 60 of Sherman's guys. Hmm. This is as of January, the beginning of the, the march from, um, from Savannah. Out of the 18,000, the Rebs only have about 13,000 present. He's got Hardy, we mentioned before. He's got William Telefero running one division with our old friend Lafayette McClaws, Ambrose Wright. And then he has James O'Connor, a guy from South Carolina, 
who was supposed to help him out, but he's slow. He's got the war child, John Wheeler, as his cavalry guy. <laughs> and he's got about 100 artillery pieces. So he doesn't have much, but what he has, he has the terrain. He has the knowledge of the terrain, mm-hmm. right? While Howard, we're going to mention Howard again. While he's doing his thing, they're doing a little bit of foraging, right? And they're doing a little bit of mayhem. I think this is a good place when we talk about this, the attitude that the soldiers have, because it is admittedly different than what it was when they were going through Georgia. The march seemed more like, oh, we're going on a march to the sea kind of thing. This is where they mean business. And this is where like, and I'm sure we'll get to this at the end of the show. This is why the Carolinas campaign is very different from the march to the sea. And There's a hatred in this It, it is. Yeah. Like you know, Sherman, he's got a really good quote in his memoirs. Somehow our men had got the idea that South Carolina was the cause of all our troubles. Her people were the first to fire on Fort Sumter had been in a great hurry to precipitate the country into civil war and therefore on them the scourge of war in its worst form. I saw and felt that we would not be able to longer restrain our men as we had in Georgia and I would not restrain the army lest its vigor and energy should be impaired. He's basically saying I'm not gonna like I have to let them do what they're gonna do but O'Connell in his biography of Sherman Fierce Patriot says that Sherman knew his men would stop at arson and but Sherman wanted to turn the heat up on the very place they had learned to hate and to still trust his army not to become apocalyptic because Sherman is still trying to wage the psychological warfare against the South too right because what is going ahead of these men coming into the Carolinas is the reputation that they got in Georgia. Now, granted, some of that is going to be a little bit exaggerated, but Sherman is banking on that too. Well, I mean, the reputation of the 15th Corps is what they're going by. But, you know, this yeah. is Blackjack Logan. So Howard, we'll find out later as he gets through Columbia that I think he legitimately did not want this to be happening. And it's probably why he was put as the right way, yep. realistically. Blackjack Logan is a different story, right? Exactly. So his 15th Corps is, is basically, Howard has to write, write letters to Logan and Blair, basically saying, to please stop robbing their valuables and abusing their women. That's what he, that's the exact quote he says. Yep. General William Hazen, who's talked about before in the 15th Corps, he says, the demon of destruction seemed to be possessing everybody. Even the smallest drummer boy wanted to get even. So you could imagine what was going on. And you could also imagine more as these stories are coming out, how more and more people are getting upset and they're getting nervous about this army coming. They're getting scared. And that's a really good point you make about Black Jack Logan, why he was not chosen to be the right wing commander for this. And I think it goes back to why Hooker was not chosen. Like Howard, he did not agree with what went on, but he knew he had to let it happen. But there came a point where he had to write those letters. And as we're going to see with Howard, what he does in Colombia is another reason why I think that mm-hmm. Sherman made the right decision with him. So Hardy's in a tough spot. He's in charge of the defenses in South Carolina. The only real mobile army he has is Lafayette McClaws. Mm-hmm. He's really the only one. The other ones are more fixed in defenses around the Charleston area. They still don't know where they're going. They still don't know what the, what the, what the plan ultimately is going to be. What the Rebs are going to do, they're basically going to set up defensive lines along some rivers that are going north, uh, away from uh, Georgia. So these are the Oshby, the Disto, the Ashley. It's a whole bunch of them. Basically, there's a river called the um, Comedy River, the Taglio to to Barnwell, now South Carolina. They're setting up a defensive line to protect Charleston because they still think they're coming to Charleston. Hardy thought he would need about 15,000 guys to defend the city. Ain't got it because what he thought was going to happen was Sherman was going to pass Charleston on the left, go north to the high ground like he did with Columbia. 
yep. ultimately, an attack from the north down at Charleston. He doesn't know that Sherman had no plans to attack Charleston. He, he just, he didn't know. What he wanted to do, obviously, was cut the railroads around the area and kind of demasculate, as they say. The mm-hmm. area around Charleston, make it base render it basically worthless. If you take all the railroads around it, you you cut them off because you got the the ocean on one side. Now you have no connections, and you got the the blockades. So you're they're screwed. The Rebs still wanted to defend the city. They talked about making all kinds of necessary preparations, but what they had to do was they had to have a plan to basically quietly announced to themselves how the hell they're going to evacuate the city. There's a lot of political pressure to keep defending. Charles said not let it fall. Adjutant General O.T., he basically told Hardy, we need to make what he called silent and cautiously all necessary preparations for the evacuation of Charleston. Because he didn't want to piss McGrath off, right? He had that whole thing, but he knew realistically, realistically speaking, they couldn't do it. They, there's no way they could. It, ultimately, we'll, we'll talk about it briefly in a few minutes, but that's the fatal flaw with the Confederates as far as, far as Charleston goes. Yeah, like like Charleston was just and and to Sherman is he's fainting Howard towards there. So of course they're going to think that and he's fainting Slocum towards Augusta. Oh, it's like he did with Macon in Georgia. Very much. There are similarities to the March to Sea, but then there are differences like the terrain as well as the attitude to, that the men have. The Rebs had in their mind that he's definitely going to get Charleston because this is where we started it. Sherman never had Charleston in his mind, whether it was because of his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, whoever she Who knows the fuck she was. He mentions a lot of women in his memoirs. In this was all those little redheaded guys. There's, you know, there's, there's you know. a lot of women mentioned, and and he keeps saying like in my younger days or whatever it was. And we'll talk um, about one here in a few minutes, Mary. We we'll will. talk about one of Sherman's women. For a guy who had that many women, maybe he should have been so mad when he's sitting there and waiting on, on the second of February for everybody to get there because he's <laughs> he's he's snapping and everybody's having he's having a tough time. But again, when the time comes and he finally is going, it's going to move on. They're going to go north. They're basically, there's really three crossing places um, along the river that he can cross. Rivers Bridge, Beaufort's Bridge, and the Sackahatchee Bridge. Sherman, basically, what he needs to do, he's going to take the 15th and 17th Corps. He's going to attack the rivers and Beaufort's Bridge. This is going to be with the right wing. And he's going to have uh, Kilpatrick. He's going to go around the left, around the Rivers Bridge, toward Barnwell and Blackville. And Barnwell. And what to, right. And so, wait, what did I say? Do you know the story of Barnwell? Barnwell, is this, is this where the bank barn is? Maybe. <laughs> If the bang barn is in Barnwell, it's probably not there anymore because they nicknamed it Burnwell after Kilpatrick oh. had been through there. You know the story that they had a party with the freed slaves at the hotel in, in Barnwell mm-hmm. as the town burned and they were joking around saying they need to call it Burnwell. Yep, I did have that story. Was pretty the funny. hotel was the bang barn. Bang barn, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. These guys are moving through like those swamps we mentioned before. They're having a tough time to the swamps. Rebs got some artillery along the river's bridge. and They're trying to slow them down. There is a battle of river's bridge that does take place. But ultimately, the 17th Corps under uh, Frank Blair is going to get across, fight those entrenched Rebs. And you remember, too, the time of the year we're talking about here, Mary, too. It's, it's wintertime. So it's cold and it's the water's cold. So you can imagine how it is. Mm-hmm. A lot of these waters are frozen over. It's just crappy out. It's a lot of swamps. So you just, you're, you're always wet all the time. And the army's trudging their way through. A lot of the railroads above that uh, Salkahatchee River to Blackwell, or uh, Blackville rather, they're, they're captured by the bombers. A place called Midway Junction. They start destroying the railroad tracks. They're doing all that stuff. There's a guy named Joseph Maurer. Who uh, Sherman likes. He calls the boldest young officer we have. He's in charge of really destroying a lot of those bridges above the swamps. So you think of how shitty that must have been. But that's how they go. I mean, you're walking through the woods, all the stuff you mentioned before. There's those stories where they had to make the codes on the trees. 
you heard yeah, the story? Yeah, that was re- that was really interesting how they would put like I think it was a cross for if one core was supposed to go that way and then it was like a cross and then something above it if another one was supposed to go that way. Well, it was they would put a cross if the yep. whole core went through that way. Yeah. So if the whole 17th or the whole 15th is going, we're going to put a cross. So if you see a cross, everyone go that way. If you saw a cross with a line underneath this, that meant just the second division went that yep. way. And if you saw a cross with a line above it, it was the first division. So whatever division you were in, you would walk and you'd see that thing and say, well, I, we're going that way. It's like mm-hmm. you walk through the trails and you see the trails. But oh, it was yeah, a neat yeah. idea just for just for help it was really it was really interesting how they how they did that for just i think for me it's like thinking how did they do this without a cell phone because all the aliens obviously exactly but it was aliens truth is out there (laughs) that's one of my favorite shows love the x-files for somebody living in the 21st century it's like how did they do this but then when i when I learned about that, it's so interesting how they were able to be able to still communicate and get this shit done. Well, like those wigwag guys, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, how, how they, you know, all that stuff, flags. But so you're getting to like the 11th or the 12th of February now. So they're, they're chugging along. And the right wing is in the lead. The left wing is basically trailing in the rear. And they're moving to a place called Orangeburg. We've got to spend some time about Orangeburg, Mary. So they fight some rebel forces on the bridge. This is a, going across the Adisto River is where the bridge is. But this is a, a real important communication hub that connects Charleston and Columbia. So remember, still, the Rebs still don't know where the hell they're going. Because nope. this is this is right near Charleston, some miles west of it. If they cut the communications, they don't know if there's no way to tell where they're going. So the Sherman's going to cut the communications, and the Rebs are going to retreat. They're going to head north across the Congaree Creek. And basically, one story that was fun about this, Mary, was the Confederates had a peanut factory there, right? They did, yep. The Union soldiers found thousands of bags of peanuts. Just one, And they just went berserk and had a party. So well, that, that would go. be, when I when I heard that, I thought that would be the ultimate food for them because it's, it's just pure fat, right? And that's going to fill them up and make them feel good. <laughs> they just needed some jelly. Yeah, exactly. Orangeburg. Talk about Orangeburg. So this is this is a city that, like I said, is a it's a communication hub about near the Odista River. Sherman's going to set up his headquarters at a place called Judge Glover's house. Okay, Judge Glover. He's one of the signers of the secession documents, the convention. So you know he's he's got the target that his house is getting burned. Okay, I know this is a this is a fun story we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Glover's wife somehow knew Sherman as a young officer in Charleston. She recognized him, and she says. You know, I knew you when you were younger, and I remember you was a gentleman, and I would hope that today you're still a gentleman. And she's pissed off. You know who she's pissed off at? She's pissed off at Howard because at Howard. Howard arrives in Orangeburg, <laughs> there's this lady, his recounting of this story is hilarious because he owes up to it all. This lady comes over to him, and she just, Howard describes her as being much excited and somewhat over solicitous i can't say that word came over to me and demanded a guard i could not make her see matters as i did in the line of relative importance so in other words lady your shit right now is not important i'm trying to deal with army stuff yeah i'm leading the right wing kind of thing and apparently howard was left deeply vexed as to how he had insulted the woman so basically howard's like every other man on the planet right now thinking what did i just do to piss her off I just told her like, I can't, I can't deal with you right now, lady. So then flash forward to when she comes to see Sherman, General Sherman says that he's very sorry and he would try to make amends and have the officer who had, you know, 
been rude to her punished and then he's like who could it be and then she says it was general howard and howard is sitting there and i can just imagine him like starting to like slump down in his chair like oh fuck yeah and it was um, one guy with the nice hair wouldn't put a guard in front of my house (laughs) apparently sherman turns to howard and he's like how is this howard Imagine everybody's probably gone silent in the room. And then Howard explains as well as he could what had happened. And then he says in his memoirs, doubtless I had been impatient. When skirmishing is going on and fires are burning, the responsible head may have on some occasions too many irons in the fire. Sherman assured her that Howard was usually a kind man and that she that she would find that he would protect her. And in the meantime, he already had sent her a guard. Yeah, so he gave in as usual. <laughs> yeah, but just how he was like, it was my fault. I was it's all impatient. my fault. I pray to you. It's all my I fault. Was, I was impatient. But it's just, I can, his recounting of the story is one reason I love his memoirs so much. He's right. he's so funny in them. And well, just that he basically puts himself out there saying like, yeah, I was impatient. Well, whether it be the fact that Sherman knew her from her younger days, yeah. or whether it be he felt bad about the whole Howard thing, for whatever reason, they didn't burn the house down, which is a real yeah. surprise. You can go there today and go to Orangeburg, and you can see Judge Glover's house where Sherman stayed. It's still there. That's a place he normally probably would have burned down. But they, who knows why? Maybe, maybe, maybe Howard saved the day. He, he can't do it all, apparently. You know. <laughs> but once the communication lines get severed, the people at Charleston get, get really, really nervous, right? Mary Chestnut, we talked about, uh, she wrote that really, really good diary, the woman in, uh, in uh, Charleston. She writes that there was basically, talk about the panic of the Union soldiers being that close to Charleston. She writes, Miss Patterson, whoever that is, called, and she described so geographically all the horrors to be endured by, these, by those subjected to fire, sword, and plunder. She's exaggerating a little bit, but basically what she's talking about is these guys are there and they're starting to really, really freak out. Governor McGrath, who's a pain in the ass apparently because he's always writing letters to these guys, he must have got wind that Hardy was going to retreat. He responds, he says, McGrath writes to Hardy, I will tell you that a retreat from Charleston will be the death march of this Confederacy. So he said the evacuation of Charleston is going to basically be a mortal blow psychologically to Charleston. That, who, you know, who knows? But that's that's what he's saying. So that's how important they still see Charleston to go. Again, he ain't going there, but that's what they think. They are not going to Charleston. They are, however, headed to Columbia and Orangeburg puts them even closer. You know, eventually we get to the 14th of February. Is that the day I think it is? Valentine's, yeah, Valentine's Day. Day. Yeah, yep. February 14th, 1865. So the evacuation of Charleston is going to begin. The Rebs move out under the cover. At night, they take over, they take off. The city does surrender on the 18th, a couple of days later, to a guy named Alexander Schimmelfending, Mary. Yes. Our old friend from the 11th Corps. He's Schimmel- the 10th Corps. Also known as Schimmelfucker. Yeah, <laughs> the pig man. So he basically is, he's on a boat. He's going to come ashore with the 10th Corps. They're going to take over the city. They're going to accept the, the surrender of the city. So uh, it's Sunday. So the union is is basically in control of the town, and it, there's not much going on. Occasional chaos here and there, but there's a story in a place called the Wilmington Street Station, which is a really interesting story. If you've ever been to Charleston, they tell you this story. So there are some local local kids, some riffraff little kids. They're playing with fire. A young Sherman protege, who knows? They're playing. They're playing with fire matches. They find some gunpowder and they're throwing the fire at the gunpowder to make sparks. Well, they start a fire. It spreads to this Wilmington Street station, which happened to house two hundred kegs of powder. Yeah, so you can see where this is going, right? Yeah. It blows up the whole thing. 
kills a hundred civilians in line for rice. So, okay. So not, oh. not, not a good story. It's one of those things that, um, that people are very upset about, but at the same time, you know, who's excited in Charleston is the local slaves, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a guy, um, the writer for the North, Northern paper, doesn't say what paper it is, but on the 18th, he writes a city of ruins, silent, mournful in deepest humiliation. The band was playing hail Columbia, awakening wild enthusiasm in the hearts of the colored people. So they're celebrating. I mean, yeah. Charles was liberated. You know, the, the, the moral, I guess, key of the Confederacy is, is, has been taken. And that's pretty much what's going to happen to Charleston. So it's going to really surrender without a shot mm-hmm. after all of everything. Yep, and it falls under the, union control. Yeah, they're going to raise a flag. It's Fort Sumter again, U.S. flags back. They're just going to stay in control for that. So around the same time, a couple... Actually, a couple of days before that, actually, uh, Judson Kilpatrick and his cavalry, they're going to end up feigning an attack towards a place called Aiken, South Carolina, towards mm. Augusta, right? What they want to do is they want to keep D.H. Hill away from going to Sherman. They're going to try to go up there and just kind of kind of keep him in space. He ends up meeting Joseph Wheeler, who was waiting for him outside of Aiken. And they get in a little bit of a fight, and Wheeler ends up beating him and takes his hat. Kilpatrick, yep. his famous hat, he loses and that's a shame for him because he, 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 he never got over losing that hat. That's <laughs> kind of like when um, when John Buford and Jeb Stewart, there was one battle they were in together and Buford managed to get Jeb's hat. <laughs> that must have been a thing to take the cal- the lead cavalry guy's hat. But Kel Patrick was, was never got over it. I mean, I love, look, I love hats, but I mean, you know, that's what that was. But, but the Union Army is now approaching Columbia. So any pretense of where they're going, now they know they're going to Columbia, right? So they're going to Columbia. Um, they cross the Saluda River in a place called Zion's Church. There's a story where some Union soldiers had a little vandalism. You heard mm-hmm. the story, Mary? Yeah. Where they took some charcoal and wrote on the wall, some drawing of some rebel soldiers retreating, pissed off yeah. a lot of people in the South. And, but, That's um, not the only church that they desecrate. No, no not there. at all. There That's... was one in Hardyville that they take down and they absolutely just, they chop at the, the corner post and they bring it down. And then as it comes down, one Union soldier said, there goes your damned old gospel shop. Wow. So, so they are, like, they're destroying shit that, you know, they may not have on the march. They're being well. You think you think back. More. You think back. We were saying at the beginning of this that with um, with the thing that Sherman was saying to Halleck, right? Or Halleck wanted to do this. That there's that mentality for you know, for better for worse. But the army now is approaching Columbia. They're going to move west, just like we said with Charleston, the west of the city, and then to get around north of it, and then come down from the high ground. And this is where we get to February 16th. We have to talk about Special Order Number 26. Yes, we do. This is directed to General Howard and Howard and his men are ordered to occupy Columbia, destroy the public buildings, railroad property, manufacturing and machine shops, but spare libraries, asylums and private dwellings. After that, Howard is to then move on to Winsboro to destroy en route that section of railway. He will also cause all the bridges, trestles, water tanks and depots on the railway railroad back to Watertree to be burned. Switch is broken and such other destruction as he can find time to accomplish consistent with proper cellar, cellar, cellary, I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> if you were to say. I can't, I can't <laughs> say it. But these are orders that are issued mm-hmm. by Sherman to Howard, which basically is a way that Sherman can come back and say, these were my orders, whatever else happened, whatever the fuck, you know. He's pulling the whole shaggy thing on that song, wasn't me. 
Wasn't me. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, that's what he's doing, yeah, right? Exactly. So yeah. He's and of course he gives it to Howard because he's got Logan. He's the fifteenth and the seventeenth. So he knows the, these are the pain in the ass. These are the troublemakers right here. Yeah. So he's going to tell them, you know, and whether or not he really means, you know, there's some quotes we'll get to a little while from Sherman later that you know he, who knows, but about whether he really thought about that. But the only guy defending Columbia as a guy named of is, is Wade Hamilton. Got it. it yeah, that that's it. And he and his and men, before they leave, they set fire to come to some do. of the cotton stores. Yeah, he's got he's got now a little bit of a controversy right there, actually. So he has got a Butler Young. And you know who else he has? He has Carter Stevenson, our old friend. He's everywhere. Yeah, he does. So Stevenson, he's got, and so he's got he's got Wheeler's Cavalry still. So you're talking about 1,500 men versus 60,000. Okay, good luck with yeah. that, right? Beauregard, Beauregard is going to tell him to hold the city as long as possible to give it time for reinforcements that yep. everyone knows ain't coming. So he's like, okay, I'll wait here all day. To your point, the city is filled to the gills with cotton. It's loaded. It is. And there's a contrast. So Beauregard wants it all burned. They can't have it. Burn it. Hampton says, I don't think I want to. Are you kidding me? It's going to burn the whole city down. Beauregard appears to relent and say, okay, we won't. But he never gets the order Hampton does, so he ends up burning it. So they burn they burn the whole cotton. <laughs> it ends up lighting the whole thing up again. Sherman, getting into February 17th now, Sherman's going to basically start striking from the north and west of the city. He kind of lightly shells it, nothing crazy, but yeah. just let hey, we're here, just so you know. They're in there by um, the they're in there by the the morning though. Howard. Um, he's got a really good recounting of it in his memoirs. He says that side by side, Sherman and I entered the city and traversed the main streets. There was not much demonstration from the white people, but the Negroes gave their usual exhibitions of delight, sometimes dancing upon the sidewalk, sometimes shouting and singing. And then the hilarious thing is, is that Howard says, I noticed that our own troops were unusually demonstrative and cheering for Sherman and learned that traders and Negroes had carried out buckets of whiskey to them, wishing to put to please and pacify the men the soldiers had worked all night and marched to columbia without a breakfast numbers of stone's brigade were thus excited and soon intoxicated i love how he just describes that they're totally shit-faced but he's and he's like howard does not drink the one thing i took away from this he's not judging them like he's just like this is what i'm he's, seeing he's right just, now he's, he's just, just trying enjoy- to- he's enjoying it he's like look who but you know Whatever so the fuck Sherman ends up meeting with the mayor of Columbia, a guy named um, named Goodwin, right? His name mm-hmm. comes up a couple of times. So Goodwin, he's told that that listen, we're just like he explains order number 26. You're gonna be protected. Here's how it's gonna go. But then he hears other officers planning. He, they basically joke and say, Yeah, just wait till nightfall. Wait to see what happens. So he's like, wait, what, what? Mary Chestnut writes in her memoirs again. Mrs. Pride was in Columbia at the same time as Sherman until the fires began. Mayor Goodwin fraternized with many Yankee generals freely. Then, when they burned his house over his head, a change came over the spirit of his dream. <laughs> so what basically say was he was kissing ass of the Yankee generals because he doesn't want his thing burnt off. And yeah. they're laughing, having a great time. Oh, by the way, we're going to burn your house now. And then he got mad. But yeah. that just kind of shows the, um, the mentality. So the night of the 17th, fires were blaring out everywhere. There was a couple of test rockets that went off that seemed to signal the soldiers to light everything up. Well, they're soldiers they're were... totally shit-faced, though. They're oh, trash. And like Howard talks about how some of these men, like they were like they were just boys. And some of them had never, ever had whiskey before. And they're getting completely shit-faced. No, in defense of some of these people in the town, they would talk about the, the whole city being lit up. They don't know if it was the factories or not. Mm-hmm. You know, fires are breaking out. They're seeing guys with torches everywhere. There's flames everywhere. Call Me Maybe is being played from all the speakers. 
the you know, soldiers are probably singing. As there's a whiskey. But a lot of the residents had said the whole city was burning. But who knows if that's even true. Or not. Yeah. Well, Howard, you know? re- Howard recounts it really well in his memoirs. I liked his account of it more than Sherman's because he was very much, you could tell that he was recounting the exact feelings he had that night. And I think this goes back to, again, like, this is one of the reasons I like Howard so much. But also, again, it shows that he would not, this is why Sherman chose him for this, because he was not one to let loose and just say, like, let's do this. He said, like, it would be impossible to exaggerate the horrors of that long night between the 17th and the 18th of February, 1865. Sherman, Logan, and myself, with all the officers under our command, worked faithfully to care for the people who were exposed And we did save many houses in different parts of the cities. The flames would lick up a house seemingly in an instant and shoot from house to house with incredible rapidity. And that was because of the wind that was happening that night too. And Howard said, the very heavens at times appeared on fire. Clusters of inhabitants would carry all of their valuables and sit upon them. And they were often guarded by faithful men. So there are union men that are guarding these troops. So not all the union men are going crazy here. A large number of our men who perhaps drank whiskey for the first time when it was brought to them that day in buckets became blindly drunk and hundreds perished in the flames in spite of all their efforts of the comrades to save them. So Howard is one. He is not, he's not stepping back from saying we didn't do this. He's saying we were definitely involved in this. So is he, is he saying we didn't start the fire? Is that what he's saying? Oh my God, I saw that earlier today. Yeah. So, well, so, so, so men started the fire, but Howard is not. They did. Yeah, but well, Howard is not one of these ones that is saying we didn't do it. He's not being like like Sherman in his memoirs or in his official report blames Wade Hampton for the fire. And Sherman, well, does. Ad- Sherman admits in his memoirs that he did that completely out of just to blame somebody that wasn't him. But Howard in his memoirs, which he wrote after Sherman died, Howard is saying, this was us too. It's not I mean, just it's a Hampton's conflicting men. stuff. Sherman writes his memoirs. He writes, you know, as many, many thought the fires were deliberately planned. This is untrue. It was accidental. And my judgment began with the cotton, which general Hampton's men had set, um, set on fire when leaving the city, which is exactly what you just said. Yeah, but again, if you, oh, in the back of your mind, you have to wonder about that letter that, that the Halleck letter about how you know the salt and the, the whole deal. Yeah, even though it wasn't Charleston, this is where you know you mentioned Howard, and I I think he should be absolved from any blame for these fires because it's very clear that he was doing his best. He wrote he that was. special or, special order forty two, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where Howard writes, okay, and he's pissed because you can tell. I can imagine the swears. That he must have been saying, oh, dag nabbit. <laughs> if Howard so was going to say saying. fuck, it would have been during this one. No, he wouldn't have been. He would have been, you know how mad I am. I can't swear by that. So he, he so he writes his commanding generals. Okay, this is Blair and Blackjack. He writes, it's been brought to my attention that the commanding general, to the commanding general, that the certain evil-spirited soldiers of this command have threatened to destroy the remainder of the city with fire. He has ordered that all common soldiers use the utmost vigilance, even taking the life of any refractory soldier to prevent a recurrence of last night. And they said they could tell he, he was pretty pissed off. So he follows that up again, the next same guys a couple of days later. I desire to call your attention to the fact that some of our soldiers have been committing the most, outra- uh, most outrageous robberies. So you can tell that he's hearing these stories now, right? And he just, he's, you know, and he's, and he's like, what the hell? And Sherman's like, well, I did special or 26, the freaking hell. I mean, I can't, I can't be everywhere, you know? 
But at the end of the day, Columbia is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Charleston's taken. They're going to move in a, into North Carolina. But you know what Howard does before he leaves? And this, this is what's really cool about your boy Howard. That's why I'm mm-hmm. going to decide he's the MVP. Not you well, this is why I – well, th- there is actually one quote that Howard has about the, um, the fire. He mm-hmm. said that it was about 3 o'clock in the morning of the 18th when the wind changed the opposite quarter. And after that, with little effort, we were able to arrest the progress of the fire so that more than one-third of the beautiful city of Columbia was suffered to remain untouched. Mm-hmm. So he, he does, does but, say like, but that, that shows right there what you were getting to. He didn't want this to, to get no. the way it did. But no. he makes amends though. So to Mayor Goodwin, right? Howard meets with Mayor Goodwin after this is whole all thing. The union is moving out. They're going to destroy railroads again. But before he does, he meets with Goodwin. He provides housing for the homeless people, helps them find housing. He gives them 500 beef cattle to yep. feed them out of the union army. Yep. And you know, so he wouldn't starve. He also gives them a hundred muskets yep. to help maintain order in town. So that's a pretty cool thing that OO does there. I mean, you're giving you're giving weapons to theoretically the enemy, but he did that so he could ultimately save. So yep. that's pretty cool. I, so when, when you put that all together, it's clear why Howard was put in charge of the right wing because he was going to be the adult in the room. Yep, he was going to be the Sherman. adult in Columbia, and and I think Sherman trusted his judgment completely and that's what that's why like you know god whatever the fuck howard did at chancellorsville and gettysburg what he does here is never taught it's never talked about all you hear is about how the the union army ransacks columbia you don't hear about how there was howard there and he's leaving them with 500 head of cattle he's giving them muskets and he's making sure they're cared for He's telling his men, stop this. This this can't happen like this. He does, And Howard is one of the ones that does right, though, that there are union men that as, as many of them are blind drunk on this night, there are ones that are still helping. And um, he says, old men, women, and children with everything that they could get out were huddled together in the streets. At some places, we found officers and kind-hearted soldiers protecting families from the insults and rough roughness of the careless so howard is not afraid to call out the the soldiers either you know he's very and that's what i like about him is he's not he's saying this is on us but we also don't say we all were this way please don't paint us with this like no i I think he he's someone i don't i think sherman knew that there was no way howard could control those guys but i think he was a guy he put in place he was probably going to try Yep. Or at least someone he could say, look, I have Oliver Otis Howard, the Christian general I mm-hmm. put in charge to avoid this. But I still got 20, he's still got 26,000 guys to control Howard. Exactly. But, but I think that was more of a symbolic thing he did. Because if Blackjack was the guy, Logan, they put in charge of that wing, yep. it would have been, the pillage would have been a lot worse. So I think it was more a political thing as they were going through Georgia and South Carolina to maybe prevent a little bit of what their ultimately history blames them for. Mm-hmm. But then when he realizes kind of- what Howard's attitude was, because Howard and Sherman are quite close. That's quite evident, especially in how Howard writes about him in his memoirs and how, how Sherman writes about Howard. The Carolinas campaign, the two of them, they're very similar in their recounting of it. But you can tell the level of respect that was there and that Sherman, Howard had probably said to Sherman, you know, as a friend, I don't agree with the pillaging, but I'm going to, you know, I have to allow it because that's what we have to do right now. But I think he would only allow it to a point, And Sherman knew that. And Sherman knew that Howard 
was the one to keep the men in some level of control so that they didn't go totally, you know, as Sherman said, apocalyptic. In the back of your mind, you know, he did write that letter, admittedly, that he was going to punish South Carolina, specifically yep. Charleston. Now, whether it's all bravado or just for the politics, part of it is probably true because he definitely did look the other way. That order, special order number 26, it definitely was a plan that night to light the city up. The wind spreads and blows, and who knows if that was a story. Can't control it was blamed. It all. Whiskey flowing. You got people pissed off at South Carolina. It, you could see where that was going. What Howard ultimately did in Columbia was try to leave them with some sort of positive. Yep. He tried to leave it so that I think he saw, like, my God, in the future, that, that this could be something that looks the North looks badly on them, you know, and he's trying to make it so that it's not. But I think too, Howard was such a good person that he would have left them the, he would, he wouldn't have done the, left the 500 cattle just, you know, like I got to do this to look good. He probably did feel sorry for them. The way he writes in his memoirs all the way through about how people are suffering and stuff tells me that he would have done that anyway. And I think again, like this is something that not only does it get left out of the story of Columbia and the controversy behind it, which I do believe like, yes, Wade Hampton's men started those fires and the union contributed to them. It's 50-50. But you also have to look at the good union soldiers that were in this, which which Howard writes about. Howard makes sure they're, that they're remembered. But you also have to remember Howard in this and the good that he did. And that like, I think this is something that is why he needs to be remembered more positively in the Civil War. So we're going to jump out of the Carolinas here for- for a few weeks here anyway. Anyway, so Sherman's going to continue to work his way north. He's going to ultimately try to connect with, you know, with, with Grant. He's going to end up chasing down Joseph E. Johnson. We'll, we'll get to all that, okay? And um, as he goes through North Carolina, which he treats very differently than South Carolina, as yeah. we'll find out uh, for different reasons. So anyway, so I think that's where we can leave this one off for now as Uncle Blingy is going to move into North Carolina and he's going to work his way up and leave Georgia and especially South Carolina and smoldering ruins ultimately as the work comes to an end as it does enter its final final few months so coming attractions Mary we got to talk about coming attractions we, we do talk about the fact that uh, we will be doing our announcement for our book club winners which will be Saturday and we yeah. said 10 15 at 10 I think I like I think we'll do it right away when we start our live stream yeah hey congratulations on the winners whoever it yeah, is so congratulations please, whoever it is we don't know yet because the thing doesn't close until Friday. Um, so next week we will be having Lisa Samia on with us to talk about Asia Booth and John Wilkes Booth. Oh my God. We can't talk about him. John Wilkes Booth. Oh, he has not be named. Posted that picture of me with John Wilkes Booth the other day, holding the oh, book. Finally oh got God. the memoirs, which I'm going to read this weekend. And then the week after that, we are going to be talking about secession. We are going to be, but real, real before we jump away from Booth real quick, we're going to be talking about Booth the early days. We're going to be talking yep. about his days at Tudor Hall. Yeah. We're going to be talking about his relationship with his sister, Asia, to your point. And it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Lisa Samia, who is a, well, a writer and author who's written books. Yep, she's um, an she award-winning author, too. Award-winning. And yep. so she does uh, presentations on Asia and John Wilkes Booth. We are very happy to have her on. So mm-hmm. we are going to do a rare guest appearance next week, Mary, with yep. Lisa. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk with her. That'll be a good time. We're both Boothies. We appreciate the, uh, the yep. history of him. and in this side, the human psychology of how do I yeah. happen? No, I was so happy when I got that book yesterday. I'm like, I'm oh, so it's a good excited book. to read it's it because like, I mean, as much as I, as much as I've, you know, I've always been into studying John Wilkes Booth, like his sister is somebody that has always fascinated me too. I really, really like Asia. She's an interesting figure in Booth's history. So I'm very much looking forward to reading that. 
So lots of good things coming, lots of good things coming. So I think we will leave it here and um, we'll talk more about Sherman later on. We'll pick up some different things, jumping from topic to topic as we're kind of all over the place, but it's a yep. good thing to talk about. So again, we will do our live at 10 o'clock on Saturday. We'll do give away our book uh, round table. Hey, yeah, it was a great time again, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Yeah. We've got lots that's of people that fun, so. are, I think, planning to attend it. Um, you know, it's our fourth one. We really like doing them. If you have never attended before, we hold them the third Wednesday of every month. If you would like to attend, shoot us an email at info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And I will be sure to send you the Zoom invite for the one in February. We will go from there. And yes, we will be determining the date of our book club meeting um, at the end of March, which we will be talking about Black Iron Mercy as well. Black Iron Mercy. Hope everybody has their book, is ready to participate. So I'm looking forward to the roundtable that we are filming tomorrow. And of course, our live on Saturday, followed by our discussion with Lisa about the booths. So yep. any final words from you, the, the goddess of Goderich, as they say? <laughs> no, thank you uh, very much to everybody who supported us through these near six months that we have been doing this podcast. It's been uh, unexpected how this has taken off for us and the community that's grown around it. And especially to you, Darren, for being um, a very awesome co-host. I this. am awesome. Thank you. It's a dream <laughs> come true. Oh, God, I know. Hey, by the way, you know, Speaking of the website, check out our blog and our check out our fan forum. Yes, Darren wrote a very, very good blog about Lincoln's, the, the last part of Lincoln's journey to DC for his inauguration. So be sure to check that out. As well, we have our forum, which you can sign up for and participate. Lots of good discussion over there, including a what if as oh well, God, which a few people is. have participated in those as are well. Yep, those are allowed on our website. So anyway, lots of good folks over there. Everybody is very like-minded and not judgmental, which is what is so awesome about this community. It certainly is, and certainly is. So we will look forward to seeing that. We look forward to seeing you next time, Mary, as we uh, move on to episode 24. So coming around the bend to half a year. It's amazing, yep. as you said. So. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. Always a good time. Glad uh, a great talk today. Always a lot of fun doing these. And we yep. will look forward to talking to you, Mary, as they say, on the other side. Hey, catch you all later. Peace out. Yeah. Bye.